Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading is going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63 and going all the way to chapter 23, verses 25. So read with me. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Hey, Beth. Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke here this morning. And um, as you can tell from what Mary Beth just read, we're, we're looking at um, what's kind of sometimes, I think, an overlooked 
passage in uh, Luke and in the, in the gospel story, kind of in the middle of some much more familiar passages that we tend to focus on uh, for good reason. Um, we, tend to, we tend to focus when we think about the, the death and the crucifixion of Jesus, we tend to focus more on the things that happen on either side of what we're reading about today. Like we tend to, to focus on the, the passages that we studied last week with Judas betraying Jesus, Peter denying Jesus on the one hand, and then we focus again for good reason on the, the crucifixion itself, the resurrection itself. And a lot of times this passage here that we're going to look at today um, is more just kind of how you get from the one to the other. And, and we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what's going on here and the, the significance of this in the overall story um, and much less the significance of it for our lives and so what we're going to see here this morning in this passage that, that uh, Mary Beth just read for us is that even though the crucifixion and the resurrection are obviously the most important part of the story, I mean, that that's, goes without saying that that's, that's the most important part of the story, and we're going to get to that, but the trials of Jesus are really where everything that Luke has been building up to in his book so far, um, everything that he's been building up to comes to a head right here. Um, this is where the, the big twist, the big reveal um, happens in Luke's story. And when you think about this, like the, the best stories have surprising twists, right? Like all the best stories, all the stories that we love have surprising twists in them, right? The, the glass slipper fits on the foot of the unwanted stepdaughter. The, the ugly duckling turns out to be a swan. Uh, the shoes that Dorothy was wearing the whole time turn out to be her ticket home. And, and then that turns out that that was all just a dream, right? Um, and, and then Darth Vader turns out to be Luke's father, the Dread Pirate Robert turns out to be Wesley, right? Like, hope, hopefully I didn't spoil any of those stories for you. But, but th we love those kinds of stories, right? We love stories that have surprising twists, big twists in them. Uh, and they're even better when, when you see that twist, when it happens, you're able to then look back through the story and see all the ways that there were, there's foreshadowing. There are things along the way that were pointing to that big twist, that big reveal that was going to happen. And you can look back and you go like, oh, that's what that was pointing at all along, right? So it shouldn't surprise us then that, that in the greatest story of all time, the, the, the true story that we're all living in, that that story would have some big twists as well and that the story has been pointing toward those twists all along. And so that's what we're going to see today as we look at Luke's account of the trials of Jesus here. Um, this section of Luke is more than just a historical account of the legal proceedings against Jesus. Uh, this is where everything that Luke has been setting up from the beginning of his book comes together. You could even make the argument that in the overall storyline of, of the Bible, that this, this part, the trials of Jesus, is, is really where everything in the big storyline of the Bible, going all the way back to the fall in the garden, comes together as well. And so we're going to look here at, at three ironic twists in the trials of Jesus. Um, three ironic twists in the trials of Jesus. The first one that we're going to see is a little bit smaller, um, but it's going to actually set up then what's going to happen in the other two twists. And then the other two are really, they're the hinges that the whole book of Luke um, and even the gospel itself turns on. 
And so let's look at these trials of Jesus together here. Um, this is kind of overlooked part of the story in the middle of the story. And, and let's see um, these three ironic twists that Luke shows us here. So before we get, begin reading, um, let's just set up real quick and remember the context leading up to this section. So over the last couple of weeks, um, John has walked us through Judas' plot to betray Jesus, the Last Supper, and then Judas or Jesus' betrayal and arrest at the Mount of Olives, and then Peter denying Jesus three times. So all of those things have happened up to this point. And so where, where we left off then is with Jesus in custody. Um, it's nighttime. He had been arrested by a group of priests and temple guards and elders of the Jews, and they had led Jesus away to the high priest's house. And so up to this point, after Jesus is led off, after he's arrested and taken away, the story kind of cuts away from Jesus' storyline, and it, it takes us over, and we follow Peter for a little while. We've, and we focus on Peter's experience outside the high priest's courthouse, or, or the high priest's house in the courtyard. And uh, we're not totally sure then what's been happening to Jesus. Uh, but now the story is going to jump back and focus on Jesus again. And we're going to catch up with what's been happening to him as he's being held in custody inside the house. And so this is, this is where we're going to see the first ironic twist. Um, and you can see this on your handout here. The first twist that we're going to look at is that Jesus is ridiculed as a prophet, but then he's proven to be one by the way that he's treated. He's ridiculed as a prophet, but then he's proven to be one by the way he's treated. Look, look at verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 63 here. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. So we're not told exactly who these men are who are holding Jesus in custody here. Um, but, but again, we do know who arrested him. I mentioned this just a second ago uh, and led him to the high priest's house. So it's likely that these are part of that same group. And so probably this would have been at least some of those temple guards uh, that were part of that arresting party. And it's possible that some of the priests and the elders that were part of that group as well have stuck around for, for what's going on here overnight in the house. And this is what they're doing to Jesus as they're holding him in custody overnight. They're, they're mocking him and they're beating him. They're hitting him. They're hurting him. And then while they're doing that, they're making fun of him and laughing at him uh, as they do it. And, and like that's going on throughout the night um, as Jesus is being held in the house here. And Luke gives us a little bit more detail about what at least part of that looks like in verse 64 here. He says, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So the word here for blaspheming means that they were reviling him or defaming him or slandering him. So you can, you can just guess the kinds of horrible things that they're saying to Jesus here. But as they're saying all of these terrible things to him and about him, they're, they're playing this kind of twisted game with him, right? They, they put a blindfold over his eyes um, so that he can't see what's going on. And then they take turns hitting him. And, and then as they do that, they say, come on, Jesus, you're supposed to be a prophet. Prophesy which one of us hit you that time. And then somebody else will hit him. And, Who was it that time, Jesus? Um, and, and that's what's going on in the, in the house here overnight. And so Luke doesn't tell us, though, whether Jesus played along with this at all. Um, in, in Luke's account, Jesus stays silent. The, these men are mocking him, playing this cruel game with him, but Jesus doesn't respond at all. And, and that's where the twist comes in, because Jesus here is being ridiculed and mocked for being a prophet, but 
he's actually being proven to be one by those who are mocking him because of what they're doing to him. They're doing exactly what Jesus had said they were going to do. Turn back in your Bible just a couple of pages. This one's not too far, so look at this. In Luke 18, um, verse 31. should just be a couple of pages back in your Bible. Um, Luke 18, 31. Look at this. It says, Taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise. So Jesus had told his disciples on the way to Jerusalem that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and ultimately handed over to the Gentiles and that he's going to be mocked and shamefully treated. And that's exactly then what's happening here in Luke 22, 63 through 65, is they're mocking him and they're shamefully treating him just like Jesus had said they would. And so by mocking Jesus, they're actually, in, in mocking him to, about being a prophet, they're actually proving that he is one. They're proving that he is a prophet. He doesn't have to respond to their silly, cruel game to prove himself. They're playing right in to what he's already said was going to happen, and they don't even realize it. And, and so here's the other thing about this twist, though, is that by unintentionally proving Jesus to be a prophet, they're also foreshadowing what's coming next. Because remember what Jesus said that Jerusalem does to the prophets? We looked at this a few times throughout the book of Luke. You don't have to turn to this one, but listen to back in Luke chapter 13, 33 and 34. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And so they're ridiculing Jesus for being a prophet and proving him to be one in the process. And what Luke is trying to help us see is that what that means then is if Jesus is a prophet, then you can tell what's coming next because this is what Jerusalem does to prophets. They, They kill them. So by proving Jesus to be a prophet and the way they treated him, they're also foreshadowing what they're ultimately going to do to him, which is where we're headed in this chapter here. So that's, that's the first ironic twist that we see in Jesus' trials. Jesus is ridiculed as a prophet, but then he's proven to be one by the way he's treated, which ultimately points to what's going to happen to him later on in the story. Next, um, look at verse 66 here, and we're going to see the second twist. second twist here in this story is that Jesus is rejected as king, but this sets in motion his enthronement as king. He's rejected as king, but that actually sets in motion his enthronement as king. Let's pick back up in chapter 22, um, verse 66. It says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. So um, Jesus was, was held overnight uh, in custody, and he's mocked and he's beaten throughout the night while they wait for office hours, basically. Um, but the, the leadership in Jerusalem, they've been waiting for this chance for a long time, and they're not about to let Jesus um, slip through their fingers. They're not going to waste any time here. So first thing in the morning, all the leaders assemble, and they lead Jesus to their council chamber. And, and the word here, that council, the word council is Sanhedrin, basically. So under, under the Roman government, um, the Romans were the ones who were ultimately in charge here. But under the Roman government, this would have been a group of Jews who were, who were powerful, wealthy, 
priests, scribes, other probably high-status Jewish leaders as well who'd been given authority by Rome to manage things within this part of the country um, so that not everything had to be managed by the Roman government. And so they had the ability and the power and the authority under Rome to to arrest certain people, to take evidence, um, to make preliminary examinations um, against criminals so that they could kind of weed out the things uh, that, that Rome didn't need to deal with and bring the important ones to Rome. And so in a sense, they're more or less the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, but they've got limits on what they can do. And so, but this group of, of men then, the, the Jewish leadership who we've seen all along, there's this mounting opposition to Jesus, they finally got their chance. And so first thing in the morning, they gather together, they bring Jesus in to examine him. And their, their goal then in this section is to build their case against Jesus so that they can take him to the Roman court and ultimately have him tried there. And so Luke's account of, of this examination is, is really short and it's really focused. The Sanhedrin are going to ask Jesus two questions. That's it. Um, both of them really related to the same charge. They, they know exactly what they're going after. And then Jesus is going to respond to each question. Um, the first one in, in a longer kind of two-part response. And then the second with a really short answer that ultimately is going to seal his fate with the Sanhedrin. But in many ways, these verses right here are the culmination of everything that Luke has been building toward since the very beginning of the book. The, the two questions that the Sanhedrin are going to ask Jesus are, are based on the very two terms that Luke has been using from the beginning of the book in making his case for who Jesus is. So it's been a little while since we were there, but if you remember back in the first several chapters of the book, that was Luke's point. Luke was using the events of Jesus' birth his baptism, his miracles, his teaching, um, and all, everything that was going on in those first few chapters to make the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah King who's establishing the kingdom that God's people had been waiting for. And so if you remember all the way back to that, there's two terms that come up over and over again at key points along the way as Luke is making that case. And those two terms are Christ and Son of God. So again, you might just want to take some notes about these. Don't, don't turn to all these as I go through them. But here's just a few examples of where these terms come up early in the book of Luke. Um, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, when the angel is announcing to Mary that she's going to have a child, she says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he's the Son of God who's going to reign on the throne of his father David. Luke 2, 10 and 11, when the angel was announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Um, Luke 2.26, when Simeon is meeting Jesus at the temple after Jesus is born, it says it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he sees Jesus. Um, chapter 3, verse 22, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
Um, in chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus is casting out some demons. This one's interesting because it actually connects both terms. The, the demons, it says, they also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Um, chapter 9, verse 20, Peter's confession. He says, uh, then he said to him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And one more chapter 9, verse 35, at the transfiguration, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So, so Luke's been making this case all along through the book that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And, and in that, he's showing that he's the Messiah king who's going to rule over God's people. He's the king that they've been waiting for. And, and so that's what Luke's trying to do. He's trying to convince us that this is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's establishing the kingdom that God's people have been waiting for. And so I don't think it's any accident here then that at, at Luke's account of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, those are the two questions that the Sanhedrin asked Jesus. Luke is intentionally bringing everything together right here. Um, it, it's time for them to make up their mind. He's made the case. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God over and over and over again. I've shown you through his teachings, through his miracles. This is who he is. Now make up your mind. Are you going to believe him or not? And so look at, look at verse 66 here, and let's read through the, the trial then in light of that background, verse 60, or the last part of verse 66. So they brought him into the council, into the Sanhedrin. They said, if you're the Christ, tell us. So again, like in light of everything that we just looked at, it's a little bit sad that they even had to ask that question. Like Luke's been showing us over and over again, Jesus has not been hiding that fact. Like that's been the point. But their, their first question for Jesus is, are you the Christ? Um, if, are you the promised Messiah King we've been waiting for? Just, just tell us if that's who you are. And, and so Jesus responds to this next, um, but his response is shocking in a couple of different ways. First, because he basically says there's really no point in him answering that question. Um, and then second, because of how he does. Um, so look at the rest of verse 67 here and let's see how he responds. He says, but he said to them, if I tell you, you'll not believe. And if I ask you, you'll not answer. So his first response is basically, guys, it's pointless for me to answer that question because you wouldn't believe me if I told you that I was. And if I were the one questioning you, you wouldn't respond to me. And we know that's true because all along the way in Luke, along the way while, Jesus, while Luke's been making the case that this is who Jesus is, we've also been seeing the growing opposition to Jesus by the Jewish leadership. Um, and this is what it has consistently been. They don't believe the evidence that they see and hear in Jesus' miracles and teaching. And instead, they keep trying to trip him up and expose him as being a false Messiah. But they haven't been able to do that yet. Um, and, and when Jesus does ask them questions, we saw this not that long ago, back in chapter 20, when they're asking him about the authority of, uh, of his authority to do things. And he flips it around on them and says, tell me, uh, John the Baptist, what about him? Whose authority did he, did he do things by? They wouldn't answer him there. Like whenever Jesus questions them, they, they back away, they won't answer him. So, so he already knows, like there's nothing he can say that's gonna change their mind at this point. They've already made up their minds. They've already made up their minds about him. They've already decided he's not the king they want. What they've seen is that he's a threat to their power. He's challenging what they've been teaching and he's causing the people to question their leadership and so they want him gone, and they've already rejected him as their king. Jesus knows that. And so in that sense, there's no point in even trying to answer this question. But 
But then in the next verse, he does answer their question and he doesn't hold back in what he says. Um, look at verse 69 here. It says, so after saying this, like, I'm not going to be able to convince you anyway, um, but, but here you go. Here's your answer. Verse 69, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And like this verse right here is the center of this ironic twist. So Jesus, in this verse, in the, in the words that he uses right here, he takes two of the main prophecies about the Messiah, one from Daniel 7. And we've talked about this several times through the book of Luke, the, the son of man. That's where that term is always pointing back to. Um, in Daniel 7, one like a son of man comes up to the ancient of days, comes up to God himself, and the son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom over all nations. And so he takes that term and that picture of the son of man um, receiving a kingdom, receiving dominion, and he mixes it together with the picture from Psalm 110 that we actually just looked at not that long ago as well. Jesus quoted it um, just recently where God tells David's Lord to sit at his right hand until his enemies are defeated and made his footstool. So two different pictures of this Messiah King, and he combines them into this one powerful claim here. So, so the question they ask Jesus is, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah King? Jesus' answer after saying, you're not going to believe me if I tell you, but his answer then is, you're about to see the Messiah King take his throne. That's what's just about to happen here. And, and Jesus says this knowing full well that they've already made up their minds about him. They've already rejected him, even though they won't say that out loud for a couple more verses here. But he still says that they're, they're about to see the Messiah King take his throne at God's right hand. So how is that possible? Because if they're going to reject him, how, does, how is he then going to take his throne like he just said? And the answer is, and this is the twist, is that it's, it's possible because their rejection is actually the means by which he's going to take his throne. Just like the guards beating Jesus played right into proving Jesus to be a prophet as they mocked him as a prophet, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders here, they're playing right into Jesus' enthronement as king in their rejection of him as king. Like They are setting in motion the events that ultimately are going to put Jesus on the throne at the right hand of the power of God. And even that, that phrase, the power of God there, that phrase is no accident either because they, the, the Jewish leaders here, they think they're the ones in power. They think they're the ones with the authority over Jesus. But actually what's going on here shows that they're under the authority of a much higher power that's orchestrating this entire situation. And Jesus is just about to be seated at the, at the position of power at his side. And so these guys, they're, they're experts in the Old Testament. They know the references that Jesus is making here, and they realize what he's saying. They realize that he's talking about being more than just a human king, because no human king could sit at God's right hand like he just said. And so, like, we've talked about this before, but for the most part, the expectation of uh, when people thought about the Messiah King and what the Jewish leaders probably were thinking, what the disciples had thought before, is that he was going to be a human king who would defeat Israel's physical enemies and establish a new political kingdom. So, so that's what they're thinking initially. But when they hear this, when they hear Jesus say what he's about to do, that he's going to go sit at the right hand of God, they realize, whoa, he's 
he's saying something a little bit more than what we were thinking. And, and that stirs them all up, and they start asking this follow-up question, which again fits right into what Luke's been trying to show us all along. Verse 70 here, they, so they all said, like they all say, they're all, what in the world are you saying? They're like, are, so are you the son of God then? Like that must be what it means if he's able to sit at God's right hand. And Jesus' response this time is short, but, but no less powerful. Look at the rest of verse 70 here. He says, and he said to them, you say that I am. So that, that little phrase there is a little bit confusing. Um, the commentaries are all over the place on what Jesus means by this. Like some are on, on one extreme saying that he's refusing to answer them. Um, he's basically just kind of saying, well, it, again, kind of tying into what he said before, it doesn't matter what I say, you've already made up your mind. So in, in, this, in that case, it would be, if you guys want to say that, go for it. Um, if that's the charge you want to take to Rome against me, go ahead. So some would lean that way. Um, others would go the complete opposite direction and say that it's a, it's a direct, bold answer. Like, you got it. You, you said it. You're right. That's exactly right. And so based on how the Sanhedrin responds here, I think I'd lean toward the second option there. Uh, they hear it as a direct claim to be the son of God which if it wasn't true, would be blasphemy and would warrant the death penalty. And, and that's what they decide is going on here. They decide that's not true. And so this is a crime punishable by death. And, and that's what we see really in their response in verse 71 here. Said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it, from, we've heard it ourselves from his own lips. And, and by that, they mean he's guilty. Like you heard it. I can't believe what he just said. Um, and oh, even in this statement, there's, there's so much irony even in this statement because they don't need any further testimony because they have heard it from his own lips. But instead of believing him and submitting to him as king, they reject him. They, they've already made up their minds that he needed to be put to death. And so they heard the things that he said through the lens that they were already looking at him and through, and they, they take his words and they use it to, to condemn him. But by doing that, they're ultimately and unknowingly setting in motion Jesus' enthronement as king. Um, and so that's, that's the second ironic twist in the trials of Jesus here. They reject him as king, but by doing that, they're actually setting in motion his enthronement as king. Which leads us to the third ironic twist here in the trials of Jesus. The third one here, and you can see this on your handout, that Jesus is declared innocent, but he's delivered to death by guilty men in place of a guilty man. So the Sanhedrin come to their verdict, and it's that Jesus is guilty. Um, he's claiming to be the Christ and the Son of God, and they don't want him to be that. They don't want him to be their king. They don't believe he really is the Son of God. And so in their minds, he's guilty, and he deserves to die. Um, but like we talked about, they don't have the authority to put Jesus to death on their own. And so um, they have to bring Jesus to the Roman authority to make their case against him if they want to see Jesus put to death for his crime. And so that's what they're going to do here in chapter 23. But what Luke is going to do in chapter 23 as that's happening is set up this third ironic twist by showing us over and over again that Jesus is completely innocent, but everyone else is guilty. Uh, and, and that's going to set, not only set up the third ironic twist in the trials of Jesus, but ultimately the biggest twist of all time. Um, let's, let's look at this together here, chapter 23, verse 1. So then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. 
So the, these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they take Jesus to Pilate. Um, we've been introduced to Pilate before in Luke. Um, back in chapter 3, uh, we, we see that he's the governor of Judea. And then in chapter 13, we see that um, when Jesus is talking to some people from the crowd there, they bring up that Pilate had, had killed some Galileans while they were making sacrifices. So we kind of know a little bit about Pilate from these two things. We know that he's the governor of Judea, and we know he's not a very nice guy. Uh, but so basically Pilate is in charge of governing and keeping the peace in the area that Jerusalem is located in, um, in Judea. And so for cases like the one the Sanhedrin are bringing to him with Jesus, he's the one that has the power to listen to the charges, to question the prisoner, and to make his verdict. And he's got the authority to have a criminal executed. So this was who the Sanhedrin needed to convince to put Jesus to death. And so in verse 2 here, they begin to make their case against Jesus. Um, look at verse 2. It says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they bring three charges against Jesus here. First, they say that Jesus is misleading their nation. Now, clearly, what they're trying to imply is that Jesus is stirring up the Jewish people against Rome. Um, they're trying to paint him as an insurrectionist. They, they want they want him to be seen as somebody who's trying to turn the people against the Roman government. And that's going to become more clear with the other charges here. But, but this is also ironic because it's exactly what Jesus had accused them, the, the Jewish religious leaders of. They were teaching the people to follow rules that they had made up, that God had never given them. And they were making excuses for not following the commands that they had been given by God. And so Jesus said that they, the, the, the religious leaders here, had taken away the key of knowledge from the people and not only were they not able to enter themselves, but they were hindering those who were entering. So they're the ones, Jesus said earlier, that are guilty of misleading the people. But, but they, they don't like that accusation from Jesus, and so they're turning it around on him. Second, then, they say that Jesus forbid them from giving tribute to Caesar, which, which that would be a serious charge in Pilate's mind, since that's one of the things he's responsible for. But we know that's completely false. Like we just saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 20, how Jesus responded when the Jewish leaders tried to trap him about this very thing, about paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus told the people there to pay their taxes to Caesar. He told them to, to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The, the coins that have Caesar's image stamped on them belong to him. So give him what belongs to him. So he didn't say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He said to pay taxes to Caesar. Like they just, they just flat out make this one up and, and lie about it. But it's another part of their case against Jesus that he's stirring up an insurrection against Rome. And then third, they say that Jesus claims to be a king, which, which would have been a direct threat to Rome. And, and this one is sort of true. Like Jesus did just flat out tell them that he's the promised Messiah king. But we also know that what the, the religious leaders here are meaning by this and the way, and the way they're spinning it to Pilate um, so that he would hear it a certain way is totally different than what Jesus meant by that claim. But that's their case against Jesus, that he's, he's stirring up the people to revolt and stop paying tribute to Caesar, and he's setting himself up as their king instead. And so these are, these are serious charges. Like if Jesus is guilty of these things, he's going to be put to death. But you, you also have to remember that what this had to have looked like to Pilate at this point when they're bringing these charges to him. Like first, he's no friend of the Jewish leaders. Like he's not predisposed to trust them or help them, probably the exact opposite. And then Jesus is standing in front of him after being kept up all night, um, being beaten around. So he probably looks pretty rough. 
and then he's all alone, like nobody's standing with him. He's, he's all by himself. And so Pilate hears these charges that, that Jesus is setting himself up as a king, stirring people up against Rome, and he sees this guy standing there all by himself. Um, and so you, you can see how Pilate reacts. Verse 3 here, it says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And so, I mean, like we don't know exactly what tone he asked that question in, but it doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to see anything too threatening in Jesus at this point. And, and so, you, I mean, just immediately he responds, the rest of verse, uh, or in Jesus then responds first, um, he answered him, you've said so. So just exactly like the response to the Sanhedrin second question, you got it. And, and just like that response was enough to convince the Sanhedrin that Jesus was guilty, it's enough to convince Pilate that he's innocent. And so Pilate immediately, just after this one question, turns to the chief priests in the crowd here in verse 4. It says, um, he says, I find no guilt in this man. And that doesn't make the, the Jewish leaders happy at all. Like they've worked too hard to get Jesus to this point um, to, to let it in like that. So they don't give up. Verse 5, it says, they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Like, Again, like don't miss the way they're twisting things here. Like they make it sound like they're protecting Rome from an insurrectionist who's stirring up the people against the Roman government, but that's not their concern at all. Like they're mad because Jesus is stirring up the people against them. Um, they, they, yeah, that's, what, that's what's been going on throughout the book. They don't like that that's what's happening here. And so just, just like we saw throughout the, the, the whole book, like Jesus traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem teaching, but his teaching is threatening their position of power, not Rome's. But they spin it to make it sound like Pilate shouldn't dare let this guy go because he's stirring the people up against Rome. But then they give him unintentionally a new piece of information. And so... Um, yeah, verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So, so Pilate picks up on this Galilee thing, and he, he realizes that he might have found a way to get himself out of this mess. Um, that if Jesus is Galilean, that's Herod's, that's Herod's jurisdiction. So he's going to send him over to Herod, who just happens to be in town for Passover, probably. And so that works out really well. So, so he sends Jesus over to Herod. And we know about Herod a little bit as well from earlier in Luke. Um, Herod was the one who had taken his brother's wife and married her instead. And John the Baptist called him out for that. And so he ultimately had John the Baptist arrested and beheaded. Um, and then later on, um, some Pharisees come to Jesus in chapter 13, warning Jesus that Herod wanted to put Jesus to death as well. And so either that wasn't completely true or he's changed his mind about Jesus by now because he's kind of excited when Pilate sends Jesus over to him. Um, here in verse 8, it says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Herod's excited to see Jesus. He, you know, he, was, he was hoping to see one of Jesus' miracles that he'd heard about. But when he's brought before him, Jesus just stays completely silent. He won't say or do anything. Herod tries for a while, it sounds like, to get him to say something, but it doesn't work. But, but the Jewish leaders this whole time are not quiet. Uh, the whole time that Herod's questioning and Jesus is standing silently, they just continue to pour on their accusations and charges, and they keep getting more and more stirred up. Um, and you can see that in verse 10, that they, they stood by vehemently accusing him. 
And so eventually Herod and his soldiers, they start to get stirred up and they pick back up with the mocking that had started overnight here in verse 11. Uh, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So the word here for splendid clothing is, is shining or bright. So it could mean that Herod had Jesus dressed in, in this royal kingly clothing as part of mocking him as king. Or it, it could be that he dressed him in, in white robes, um, which that could have also been king's clothing, but it could also have been that this is the, merit, the, the message that he's sending back to uh, Pilate, that he can't find anything to convict Jesus of either, that, that he's innocent. Either way, after Herod has some fun with Jesus, he sends him back to Pilate. And so now the ball is back in Pilate's court um, here in verse 13. So Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. After examining before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So I'll therefore punish and release him. And so Pilate's final verdict is not guilty. Pilate thinks he's innocent. Herod thought he was innocent. Jesus is not guilty and he doesn't deserve to die. So Pilate wants to just punish him lightly to calm everybody down and send him on his way. But instead of satisfying the crowd, Pilate's verdict just stirs them up even more against Jesus. And you see this in verse 18 and following. It says, but they all cried together away with this man and released to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So now everybody turns against Jesus, not just the Jewish leaders, but everybody. Like it, It's shocking. Up to this point, the, the crowds have usually sided with Jesus, but now the point is that everybody's turned against him. Jesus was declared innocent, but everybody rejects him. And instead of Jesus, look who they begin to ask Pilate for instead. They cry out for him to take Jesus away, as in put him to death, and instead to give them Barabbas, who Luke tells them has been arrested for insurrection and for murder. So Barabbas is guilty of what Jesus had been accused of and worse. And, and really then by asking for somebody that they know to be an insurrectionist to be released, the crowd could be charged with insurrection themselves. So everybody here ultimately is guilty of what they had falsely accused Jesus of in the first place. So Jesus is innocent, Everybody else is guilty and it's shocking. Like they would rather have somebody that everyone knows is a dangerous criminal turned loose rather than having Jesus, the innocent one, released. And, and even Pilate is surprised here. Verse 20, it says, Pilate addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Like Pilate can't believe what's happening here. Like he tries to reason with the crowd and get them to calm down, tries two more times to release Jesus and convince the people of his innocence, but they will not listen. They just get louder and louder and more and more worked up, demanding that Pilate have Jesus crucified. And then, and then the final twist comes there in uh, verse 25. Uh, Pilate gives in. He knows Jesus is innocent, but to appease the people and ultimately protect himself, 
He adds himself to the list of guilty people and he trades Jesus, the innocent one, for Barabbas, the criminal. So Jesus is declared innocent, but then he's delivered over to death by guilty men in place of a guilty man. And it's the third ironic twist in the trials of Jesus. And ultimately, it's the greatest twist in all of history. Because in that final exchange, we get a picture of the great exchange of the gospel. Because Jesus didn't just take the place of one guilty man when he went to the cross. He took the place of all of his guilty people. Like we've all been guilty of rebellion against God since Adam and Eve ate from the tree in Genesis 3 and were sent into exile out of the garden. But God promised that day that he would send a son who would break the curse and bring them back. And so from that point, all of history was leading to this moment right here. All the promises of the Messiah King who would be the one to bring God's people back from exile and establish his kingdom forever. And now Jesus has come and he spoke God's word to God's people as the ultimate prophet. And through his miracles and through his teaching, he's proven that he's the Messiah King, the promised Messiah King, and he's establishing his kingdom but his people turned against him and rejected him and put him to death. But all of that was part of God's plan for Jesus to become our innocent sacrifice because to rescue us from exile and make it possible for us to live as part of his kingdom, our, our sin and our curse, death had to be dealt with. So our king came to this earth and took our curse on himself. He lived the perfect, innocent life of obedience to God that we had all failed to live. And then he exchanged himself for all of us and took the curse and the wrath of God that all of us deserved. And so at the very moment that it appears that he's defeated, he is actually turning the tables on all of history and he's defeating our greatest enemy. He's reversing the curse. He's bringing his people back from exile and he's taking his throne at the right hand of God where he's going to reign for all of eternity uh, the writer of Hebrews sums this all up beautifully in the first few verses of Hebrews 1. He says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, his son, the ultimate prophet, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins as our innocent sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as the promised Messiah King. Like that's a great story, right? Oh, so good. But, but this isn't Hollywood. It's not a fairy tale. Like this is 100% true. And it's, and it's the story that we all live in. And so if all of that's true, how should that affect the way that we live? Really quickly here to close, um, you can see this on your handout, how should we respond? Um, you're going to see two points on your handout there under that heading. Um, they're great. Um, you can think about them later, um, but we're not going to talk about those two points this morning. Um, just as I was preparing for this and finishing up, I, just, I felt the Lord leading us in a different way with this, and so I'm going to give you two different points instead of the two that are there. And so how should we respond to all of this? Um, you can write this down if you want. Um, first of all, believe that Jesus is the Messiah King. Again, like that's what Luke has been driving toward this whole book. And this is where it all comes together. And both the people physically there at this time, but also us as the readers are forced to make a decision about him. All the evidence has been laid out for 22 chapters. Now it's time to decide. Will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah King or will you reject him? 
And so if you're a Christian, all this is written, the book of Luke is written to give us confidence in what we already believe. That's what Luke said back at the very beginning of the book. He wrote all this for Theophilus so that he would have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. So, So Christian, let all this give you confidence and certainty in the king that you have believed in. But, but if you're not a Christian, this is the call for you this morning. All the evidence has been laid out. Believe that Jesus is the king. and Believe that he's the sacrifice that takes away your sin so that you can become a citizen of his kingdom. Oh, if that's you here this morning, I pray that your heart is crying out even now. I believe. And if it is, then you can cry out to God in prayer right now where you're sitting. You can tell him that. And the way the Bible calls us to respond to the good news uh, that Jesus is our king and the sacrifice for our sins is to repent, to confess our sins, to turn from them, to put all our hope in Jesus and his innocence and in his sacrifice in your place. Like, you can do that today. And I or any other Christian here would love to talk to you more about this before uh, you leave this morning. So that's the first way we should respond. We should believe that Jesus is the Messiah King. And second, obey Jesus as your king. Obey Jesus as your king. Like if Jesus is our king, and if we as those who believe in him as king and who've been transformed by his sacrifice in our place are citizens of his kingdom, our lives should give evidence of that being true. So a lot of times we, we tend to think of Jesus as king in, in past tense. Um, yes, when he came and lived and died and rose again, he was establishing his kingdom like we've seen in, in Luke. Um, and, and we think of it in the future tense, like someday when he comes back, he's going to finally consummate his kingdom and he's going to reign over us forever. But, but how often do we think about him as king in the present tense? Like, do we live day by day as if he's our king now? Because that's what Jesus said was happening right here in this passage. He says, from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Like he's there now. Like he's reigning now. Yes, there's more to come, but that doesn't minimize the significance of Jesus being your king today. So that means a couple of things. One, you're not the king of your life. Like that's what everybody in this passage we looked at this morning was living as. They were all being driven by self-centered hearts and living as if they were king. And because Jesus threatened their personal kingdoms, they rejected him. And, And all too often we live that way too. We live as if we can make the decisions for our life as if we are the king of our own life um, and, as, and we forget that Jesus actually is. But if Jesus is the king, then we are not, which means that second, as Christians, our lives should be lived in obedience to our king. Like Our primary identity now is citizens of Jesus' kingdom. So just like someone can maybe tell what, what part of the world you're from, from your accent, unless you're from the Midwest because we don't have an accent, everybody else does, um, yeah, just like that, like they can tell where you're from by your accent. They ought to be able to tell that by the way you live, that you're from a different kingdom. So can, can people tell that Jesus is your king by the way that you live? Or do you blend right in with everyone around you? And this isn't just about, a lot of times when we hear that, we make it about the big things. We make it about quitting your job, selling your house, moving overseas to tell people about Jesus. And and that's great. It might mean that for you. It's meant that for several people in our church. We pray that it would mean that for more, um, that God would send out even more. But, oh, this is about normal, everyday life, living as if Jesus is our king in normal, everyday life, like how we spend our time. Do you set your alarm and get up early so you can spend time in the word, hearing your king's voice so that you can live in obedience to his will? 
It's about how we make our decisions. Like, do you ask God for wisdom and then seek godly counsel and decide not necessarily what's best for you and your kingdom, but what's best for the kingdom? Um, It's about fighting sin like lust and anger and self-centeredness day by day, putting those to death because you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. It's about being a good steward of the resources that the king has entrusted to you because they belong to him and not to you. It's about working the job the king has entrusted to you or raising the kids that the king has entrusted to you in a way that reflects his standards and his glory. It's about filling your mind with truth and things that stir your heart for Jesus and his kingdom. And it's about gathering together each week to sit under the word and take the Lord's Supper together, to be reminded that we're under the authority of our king who's spoken to us, to be reminded that our innocent king was condemned in our place as our sacrifice. Like we're so quick to forget and so quick to slip into living the story the world around us is telling us rather than the story that that we're reminded of in this passage today. And so my prayer in closing, my prayer is that the Lord would stir our hearts with the beauty of that story, with the beauty of the gospel story, and that he would stir our hearts to believe in Jesus as our king, be confident in Jesus as our king, and to live in obedience to Jesus as our king. Let's pray. Father, I'm humbled by um, my own self-centeredness as I think about this passage and how often I don't live as if these things that I just were talking, was talking about are true. Um, Lord, would you stir my heart with these truths and each one of us in this room, would you remind us of the beauty of the story that, that we are living in and that we're a part of? Um, it's the greatest story that we could ever imagine, um, better than any story that we've ever been told, and we're living it. It's 100% true that, that we, the rebels against the creator God of the universe, Um, who were sent into exile away from your presence, you have sent your son to be the innocent sacrifice that we desperately needed, um, to be our Passover lamb, the, the Passover lamb who was innocent and spotless, and slaughtered so that the blood could be spread on the doorpost so that the the son would be spared from the angel of death and the people would be rescued from slavery in Egypt. You became that for us. You became the innocent, spotless sacrifice so that your blood could protect us from death and that we could be delivered from slavery to sin. And, And just like Barabbas and Jesus took his place and died instead of him. Lord, you sent him to take our place. Um, You stood condemned in our place. Um, And beyond that, then you have exalted him to take his throne at your right hand. And now he reigns over us as our king because he brought us back from exile through his death. Our sins are forgiven, our, our enemies defeated. And now we can, we can be citizens of his kingdom. We're made right with you. We've been given new hearts that, that submit to him as king, that follow him as king. Lord, would you stir our hearts with that truth and would you cause us to live in, real, in the light of those realities uh, more and more? God, would you cause us to live in just normal everyday life in ways that would make sense if these things are true and that would, that would 
give evidence to the fact that we belong to your kingdom and that you are our king. Lord, would you remind us of these things? Would you convict our hearts where they need to be convicted in this um, and, and cause us to, to just well up and worship for our king who's our sacrifice uh, in our place? Uh, thank you for these truths that we've been reminded of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.